This is ChaosCast, the Chaos Community Podcast where we share use cases and experiences with measuring open source community health, elevating conversations about metrics, analytics, and software from the Community Health Analytics Open Source Software or short Chaos Project to wherever you like to listen. Welcome to this episode. This podcast is sponsored by our friends at Sustain, a community of open source enthusiasts and professionals that care about the future of open source. Learn more at sustainoss.org. On the panel today are Sophia Vargas. Hello, Sophia Vargas. I'm a program manager within Google, working in our open source programs office on a team that focuses on research and operations. I've also been working with the chaos community, specifically in our risk working group. Sean Goggins. I am Sean Goggins. I've been working with chaos for a while now. I am a computer science professor at the University of Missouri. And myself, Georg Link. Hi, everyone. Good to be back with you. I'm a co-founder of the Chaos Project, co-lead of the governing board. I really enjoy running the podcast. And I work at Biturgia as the director of sales. I'm the lead of the IEEE SA Open Community Advisory Group. And I also teach open source communities at the Brandeis University. And today I'm super excited to have Vladimir and Li Kang join us to talk about their research into forecasting sustainability of open source communities. So Vladimir Likang, welcome. Thank you, good to be here. So my name is Vladimir Filkov and I'm a professor of computer science at the University of California, Davis. I am a data scientist and a software engineer. My group studies quantitative methodologies for understanding development productivity and team-based software development via metrics that are extracted from developer repositories and activities. Hi, I'm Li Kang. I'm currently a third-year PhD student at UC Davis, working with Professor Vladimir Filkov. Now I'm interested in studying OSS sustainability from an angle of social technical system and institutional governance. I'm super excited that we got a hold of you to talk about your work because it's so related to the Chaos Project. For those who are new to the Chaos Project, we started four years ago because there was so much interest in understanding what is a healthy community? How do we use the data that is available to get metrics that tell us how healthy a community is? And I feel like what you're doing is all this work and then you're taking it a step further. So we are very excited actually about Chaos and our interaction with you guys and your listeners. You've been in our rear view mirror for a while now, and we have been thinking about joining in and then doing some cool stuff together. So yeah, happy to be here. You guys are the bomb. <laughs> <laughs> so how did you get into this topic? What was your motivation to look at open source sustainability? Well, we've been on the topic of understanding team development and understanding projects, open source projects in particular. For a while now, I co-direct the decal lab at UC Davis. So we have been very fortunate to have very good students who have worked in industry and continued in industry and different universities. And we have always understood this to be kind of a starting point, the metrics that we study, the data that we analyze. 
towards some goals. And the goals were understanding how productivity works in teams, what matters to teams of software developers, diversity and inclusion, and all sorts of big topics. So we are kind of data scientists of software engineering, but with a social impact first. And we kind of managed to put this together in an idea when I started meeting with institutional governance people and governance people and ecosystems people in general on the communications and the political spectrum side. And we understood that the socio-technical systems of software developers are also self-governed or they are governed in some way. And this governance together with the organization of the systems can lead us to understanding how they actually succeed. And of course, we don't know what succeed means formally. So sustainability is a topic that we are very interested in. How do we keep staying engaged, a team with a project, an individual with a team, and so on? And then so we wrote a grant proposal together back in May of last year under COVID. We used our time effectively and it got funded. So we got $3.4 million across multiple institutions, University of Massachusetts Amherst and UC Davis. And we are the lead at UC Davis. And we've combined many different skills and people to study sustainability in open source software. And Chaos was one of the first group of people that we talked to, Sean and Matt, back in October of last year. And we are, again, happy to talk to you more. I have to ask the straightforward question first, and just so our listeners are on the same page. How do you think about the concept of sustainability? I think you mentioned earlier about how you're keeping developers or contributors engaged, but Clearly, there can be a lot of elements associated with that term. So I'd love to hear from your perspective, what does that mean? Well, let me just, you know, of course, we have to operationalize this and we'll talk more about that, about the specific work that we've done. But let me give you the bigger picture. So we are thinking of projects, you know, being nascent, starting from some idea, some stage with a few people, more people joining in with this cool idea or they're joining a foundation or whatever. And this project grows. So part of sustainability is this initial growth, reaching some level of being you know, somewhat useful. And it keeps going by recruiting people and by having regular contributions to it. So that's a part of sustainability, this ability to generate output regularly to attract people and to keep going. Keep going is this part of sustainability. But what we realized is that even though it's difficult to define sustainability, especially people, when they define it, they use the term success. What does it mean to be successful? Is it downloads? Is it how much money you got, etc.? But we realize that there is a much simpler way to define sustainability. Let's take a look at how the open source community defines it. And in particular, the Apache Software Foundation is a home for many different successful projects. They have their incubator. And they do incubate these projects to a level of sustainability after which they can join the ASF and become part of it. And so we defined it simply as, well, whatever projects were successful, that's a notion of success for us. And those that didn't manage to get into the ASF got retired, well, those were not successful. So sustainability from the perspective of the ASF evaluators as successful or unsuccessful projects. And that's what got us started in thinking about this. Can we do it through that labeling? So is it binary in the sense that you either get out of the incubator alive or you don't? Is it like a neonatal intensive care unit or? Almost entirely, I think, Lee Ken? That's right. 
expanded outcome, either retired or graduated from the incubator. And there is a third type, which is incubating, but the outcome is binary. So if you're using the incubator, I think sustainability here is really about the start of projects because incubators are usually for new projects or projects that want to move into the foundation. So you're looking at, can we get a new project to the stage where we think it will be sustainable in the long term and filter out those that don't make it? That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And this is, to our knowledge, this is the first time somebody has used this particular definition, which is both precise enough and community generated to evaluate success. Yeah, I can see the appeal of going this route. And the ASF being one of the oldest open source software foundations, they have a lot of experience, a lot of success. There's been a lot of thought that has gone into creating an incubator. Let's call them long running. Yeah, They're not old. They've just been doing this effectively for a long period of time. And by no means they're the only game out there, right? I mean, there are so many foundations nowadays and many are very successful and many have incubators. But the ASF is certainly the prototypical, right? The other thing that's good about the ASF is, I mean, for us, is that they're willing to work with us. They have been very kind to allow us to interview run surveys, talk to them. We are going to ApacheCon to present our work. So we got engaged with their community. So yeah, so it's very helpful to actually have the buy-in. So I'd love to get a summary for our listeners of what your project covered and sort of the key observations you had so we can get a bit into what you found from this research. The general project that we got funded is about integrating our own way of uh, looking at uh, software development, which is through socio-technical networks, as we call it, the organizational part of the projects. This is people interacting with each other, communicating, and also people interacting with the artifact or what they're creating. So integrating the socio-technical part with the governance part, which is the second addition that we are are putting in here in the mix. And we are going to develop models that include both. The work that we are here to present, which is the first published work that's going to be presented later this year at the Foundation of Software Engineering, one of the top conferences in the field, is specifically about being able to forecast Apache Software Foundation OSS sustainability, meaning they graduate from the perspective of the socio-technical side. So this work does not yet include any of the governance stuff that we are working on now. So we are looking at how the networks of people collaborating together and talking to each other together with the networks of them contributing to different files can be determinant for whether a project succeeds in any given amount of time. So we're looking to forecast sustainability or success from these networks of uh, interactions. And Lee can tell us more how we do this. So we start with the idea of socio-technical system. So we want to measure the socio-technical system using the networks. So basically, we have two kinds of networks. The first one is a social network. So if anyone send email to, if one developer send an email to a developer, another developer, then they form an edge between them. And based on this, we form a social network. And the other one is the technical network, which is if 
developer A commit to file B, then developer C commit to file B also, then they form an edge. They are collaborating with each other. Maybe elaborate a little bit on what you mean by socio-technical. It's a term that has been conflated and means different things in European contexts than it does in American contexts. And I'm just curious how you are thinking about what a socio-technical system is. Yeah, happy to add here a little bit more about socio-technical systems. These are systems of people working on artifacts. What they include is two different things, and we call them work and talk. Okay, so, so they're two different activities at least. So people coordinate, they talk to each other, and people work, meaning they contribute to the artifact that they're creating. By talking here, we mean talk that is not, hey, how are you doing? Although they do that stuff too but talk that is about coordinating their work on the artifact. So we're talking about open source software, right? That exhibit different type of governance. So self-governance and self-coordination is a big thing. And that's why these systems, the whole development project, people involved in it, we call them socio-technical systems. From the perspective of both doing social and technical activities at the same time, and both are important as determinants for the resulting artifact. So I'm curious, one thing that we're talking about in chaos is about recognizing all types of contributions. And so I'm curious to hear your perspective on this, because it sounds like you have the mailing list archives for the social network and the Git log for the contributions to files. Does that already cover all the activities in a project or are you missing out on something and how do you compensate for that? Actually, I think on the mailing list, ASL have a special regulation that if it didn't happen on the mailing list, it didn't happen. So such non-code contributions like documentation, scheduling meetings, it actually happened on the mailing list. The way that we gather content from the mailing list is only sending emails uh, one to the other. Uh, however, we can still get the content, like the topic of the email. So we still have that information. So later on, we may use that information taken into our model. We were very picky when we chose our model foundation. ASF was chosen specifically for this, that it involves a look at basically everything that's on the mailing list and there's nothing that's not on the mailing list. So we're working on another project now, gathering another foundation's data the OSGEO Foundation. I'm not sure if anybody is familiar, but this is a foundation related to geographic software, open source software. And it's very different where people communicate in each project via different means. And then there's files to be found in many different places. Each project is basically its own kingdom doing different things. And it's getting very complicated to just gather the data. Going backward to answer your question, ASF was a, a very nice model organism, so to speak, to study because everything is in one place. What did you actually find? What's predicting sustainability? So in this work, we identified the socio-technical features, for example, the mean degree of the social network and technical network, clustering coefficient of social network and technical network, and so on and so forth. So we have about tens of the socio-technical measures for each month. That means we aggregate the social technical network per month. And for each month, we get the features and then we fit them in our LSTM model. 
So iOS TM model can give us the forecasting, the probability of graduation at any time point. So based on the iOS TM model, we can get sustainability forecasting. I think our listeners would really appreciate a definition of LSTM and what kind of modeling that is, because I think it's a little bit different than a lot of computational modeling. Let me just give a broader thing about AI using software engineering, which is on the rise. So deep learning networks are really powerful in giving us outcomes from multi-featured data and heterogeneous data sources. And this is what we use here. One type of AI technology specifically geared toward temporal data and forecasting. In general, in this work, we identify, first of all, identify the social technical features can actually distinguish graduated project and retired projects. And then from the ASF data, we build temporal forecasting model that can predict sustainability outcome at any time point based on the deep learning model. And Based on the deep learning model, we even more, we interpret the deep learning model based on a tool called LIME that can give us the coefficients of the tens of the social technical measures so that we can know, okay, at month 10, we should include more people. At month 11, then we should increase the amount of social activity, so on and so forth. So based on that, we can offer practical and timely advice intervening to correct the project's trajectory. So if a project is experiencing some downturn, their sustainability forecast is going down, then we may want the project manager or their mentor to stand out and help them to correct that the trajectory by changing the socio-technical measures. Just to add here in terms of the technology, if the listeners are not familiar too much with the neural networks, this is one of the machine learning techniques or AI techniques, which uh, puts together layers of nodes that each of them get input and transform it into an output. And when you put many of these layers together, you get what's called deep neural networks. And they're able to capture nonlinear relationships between the inputs and match them to the output. In particular, the technology we use here is a form of a recurrent neural network meaning it goes over time, it recurs, it can model such signals. They're called long short-term memory network architectures, which are specifically adept to modeling signals over time from many different features. And as Li Kang said, what's very interesting is that even though neural networks in particular are not, even though they're very good at predicting things very well, they are not very explainable. So because of that, we use special tools to approximate their solutions and figure out what they're trying to tell us. You don't just want a 99% accuracy. You want to know why and what causes, what are the determinants in the model. And for that, we use local approximation tools like Lime to actually give us the features that make these predictions so good. And at the end, by having these features, one can be proactive. And looking at the forecast, say, oh, look, your forecast of sustainability is dropping. Maybe you should do something with respect to email all the other members on your team. You're not emailing enough. Or look, you're not maintaining uh, symmetric relationships with team members, etc. So we do get the important features and we do get an actionable outcome of this. 
So if I was trying to explain this to my mom, which it's summer in America, so I'm going to have to. Scientifically, I, I understand what you're talking about, but I think there's some really super interesting human technical things buried in there that I want to be able to explain to my mom and I'm not quite ready to yet. Help me see what that means to me as a software developer deciding what open source project to contribute to, or me as a person trying to incubate a project. How are these methods helping? And I see that they are, but if you can maybe help me see it a little bit more clearly so I can explain it to my mom. Okay, first of all, OSS is a deeply connected to the nation's infrastructure. We use OSS all the time. Many people use it without knowing it. Most of them fail OSS projects. Various numbers from 80% to 95% of new nascent OSS projects fail. Many of them join these foundations so that they're helped to succeed. Projects like yours, Chaos, exists so that projects can self-instrument themselves. So I want to come out here for the first time for, you know, kind of summarize our goal is to engineer sustainability. How do we engineer sustainability? By having the instruments, the metrics, by having the methodologies to use those metrics, and by having the actionable outcomes to give a project contributors a way to look at themselves and say, look, we are not doing as well here and we know this can help us. So let's up that. Okay. So instead of following the four myths of sustainability, let's use actual quantitative measures that are shown to work for most projects. And let's not follow trajectories that don't work or have been shown not to work. So self-reflection, just like chaos, instrumenting the project and helping people engineer their own sustainability. What are the four myths of sustainability? So maybe they're not four. They're probably more. I mentioned them because of the apocalypse uh, stuff, the four writers. But certainly be very productive, commit regularly, use modern technologies, join popular projects and then imitate popular projects, things like that. So also one thing that I'd like to better understand is to... A lot of the focus, it seems, is on the people aspect in terms of coming around to create something and what about their behavior indicates whether or not this is headed on a sustainable trajectory. But I'd like to know more about the assumptions of the people themselves in the sense of, I believe your papers have mentioned something about voluntary contribution, where there can be many motivations to work on a project, whether or not you're part of a corporation, you have financial incentive, or you just find it more passion-based. I was curious if there were sort of the step before you start defining your groups of people, if there's any understanding of individual characteristics, motivation, or incentive that could also dictate the progression of that project. So I have a two-part answer to that. One is in this particular quantitative study that we did on forecasting using networks, Individuals as part of a project, so we don't consider individuals per se. What we are saying is even though they're individual differences, we're going to average them out and we're going to look at patterns that work for projects. Okay, so the individual doesn't figure necessarily in there. Of course, we analyze their emails, et cetera, but they don't figure in. The second part of my answer is we are now studying that. We're actually working through interviews and surveys to look at the incentives that people have 
to contribute to a project that's going one way versus another and then how they react to some of those incentives. So that's work in progress. In particular, we are looking at mentorship. We are looking at how people interact together. We are looking at the role of the project popularity and so on in this. Now, incentives in general have been studied a lot for why people contribute to OSS. And often we find them in their various numbers, but between 40 and 60% of all contributors in some way are connected to companies. So they're not all just volunteering their time. They're incentivized by their own work or by companies to contribute to these projects. So incentives can be multifarious. Mine was also a two-part question because the second one was you mentioned governance up front, which within projects can have very specific meanings in terms of how projects are run and expectations around contribution and decision-making. So I was curious how you normalize for different kinds of governance models, or is it do they all have the same because they're part of the incubator program? So this is what actually Lee Kang and a couple of other students are working on now. So I'm not going to share too many details, but cool stuff are coming in the future. But what we are working on is a technology to Give us a hint. the reveal of what type of governance exists in this project. We have adopted a technology, a big framework, which is called institutional analysis design and institutional grammars which allows us to analyze statements in emails, in project files, in description of project goals, et cetera, and identify which of those statements are actually institution, parts of an institutional statement that says, let's do this, let's agree on doing that, and thereby setting some rules for the community. And by putting all those statements together, we can actually follow how the governance gets into the structure of the socio-technical system and how it modifies it. So we are working, in other words, on a system to automatically identify these statements and to identify the ones that are helpful versus the ones that are less helpful, et cetera, without any pre-assumptions of how or what the governance structure or grammar should be. While open source software today is powering critical infrastructure, the open source ecosystem as a whole is rapidly changing. Facing challenges for governance, maintenance, maintainer burnout, funding, marketing, and more. Are you concerned about these things for your open source software too? Well, in the sustained community, we discuss these challenges and share solutions for how to sustain open source in the long haul. We meet once per year in person, and the rest of the time we keep the fire burning in our discourse forum. Join our conversations at sustainoss.org and sustain OSS on Twitter. I lied, there's one more question in this line of thinking, (laughs) (laughs) which is around size. So I know you've, you've been talking a lot about generals and how you are able to bring together a bunch of different examples to try to figure out a pattern, but there's always sort of the question of, well, okay, how many people does it take? And especially that you're looking at the trajectory of a nascent project up to something that can be graduated and sustained the size of projects is highly variable in terms of the number of people that can work on them. So I'm curious how you were addressing differences in size and whether or not it makes sense to model certain size groups of projects, given that they might have their own optimal way of decision-making in smaller groups versus larger groups. There's just different dynamics in terms of the number of people involved. So I'm curious how you were handling that in your approach. So you're right, size matters. And these projects vary in sizes, orders of magnitude sometimes. 
So it's very difficult to analyze them unless you actually are aware that the sizes are different. So we do correct for size in our analysis, but to go deeper, you know, the precursor to this is, can projects of different sizes be successful and sustainable? And, you know, how we help different projects because clearly they need different types of, well, I think of an OSS project really, or any software project as a house and it needs to have a roof. It needs to have, you know, windows, it needs to have a door. So no matter how big your project is, it needs, I mean, in terms of people, it needs to have some components to make it work. And so it cannot be too small. We see over and over again that projects that just start and they maintain the level of labor to two, three people, they invariably end up with everybody doing everything. And this overlap does not correlate well with good outcomes. So what we find is that some focus is needed of people to the technical artifact modules to actually make this more sustainable. Overlap is bad in many different ways, unless it's very collaborative and very thoughtful. So eventually, as you start building all these things that the house needs, you'll realize you need the different people so that they don't collide. And so there are some minimal numbers of people that you will require to be sustainable. What those numbers are, interestingly, we don't know, but we see you know, successful projects of size five, six, all over. Now, that's not to say that one person cannot you know, be a, a single person orchestra, of course, but those are rare. We're always talking on the average. So when you think about groups, do you think about cognition and awareness of a group, sort of the core group shares some mental space with each other that helps them to keep the project on track and moving forward and potentially attracting new contributors? Or do you think about other things? We have considered ASF projects for a while as uh, in the onion model, where you have a core group and then we have people around them, and then they're being allowed into the core group over time as importantly, trust grows towards them. We have found that social contributions outweigh, in many cases, the actual technical contributions to these projects in terms of who gets allowed into the circle of trust. So it's very important to be socially active in order to get in there. And as these projects grow, we are getting the feeling that you need to be buying in somehow with the idea, not just with contributions, but be a participant from the social side too. When you say social contributions, is that simply commenting on issues and merge requests? Yes. And are yet, there other kinds of social contributions that you refer to? We have divided contributions in one of our past studies on how this, uh, so we, we have a, a paper in the past that won a, a test of time award, actually. It was about the cathedral and the bazaar, how hierarchies start arising in these projects. And we have found that both type of contributions are equally present and therefore not selected again. So therefore, you know, useful. We have the social contribution and the, the technical social contributions. So a chat like, oh, thank you very much for your comment. You know, that's very valuable. It establishes a membership in a community. And I think in Apache, especially the community is everything, community before code. Now, this may vary from project to project, but from what we have studied in Apache, it turns out that all types of social comments are important. So in your work so far, what kind of challenges have you faced and how did you overcome those challenges? And I'm asking because in the chaos community, we are a community of practice. There are a lot of people who are 
looking at community health and sustainability, we always want to learn from each other. So if you can talk a little bit about what challenges that you faced and how you overcame those, I think there are some listeners who might be very interested. Let me tell you a little bit of challenges on the organizational and the vision side. In order to study these things the way we do, we need skills across multiple disciplines. And my MO has been always to, and this is what has made me more effective, to be able to combine people in my lab. We have a larger lab to be able to call on people and join them so that they work together on a project. So we do like to publish with other people. We do like to create new research with other people. So if I have a person who can do a lot of mining of repositories and another who is good at an analysis and, and bringing in a collaborator who can do the analysis from the communications or political side of the spectrum or governance or psychology, we bring them in. So the ability to collaborate with many has been great, but identifying collaborators and bringing them in has been challenging. So this is a multidisciplinary approach. And again, this is one of the difficulties. The other difficulty is I'm a computer scientist, but this is mostly empirical and modeling work. We are not creating new artifacts, so to speak, although we are creating different dashboards by which people can actually assess their OSSs. So it's also a problem of where do we belong? Is this regular software engineering work? Is it computer-supported collaborative work? In academia, it's very important to know where to publish. So we have published all over the place. And that has actually worked out great for us. And then, of course, there is a part of recruitment. How do we hire people that can do so many different things that need to be able to do machine learning, also write code to be able to scrape all these repositories and then analyze them meaningfully based on theories that exist already? So it is multidisciplinary work and it takes time. So Vladimir just stated some challenges on the high level. I think specifically for our project in the ASF incubator project, we treat all the project the same way. So, but actually they don't, they are not the same. So project already, they may already have some code donated or they already established some connection between developer. They know each other. And then they submit the proposal to the ASF incubator and then they get in. So we don't have that information. The pre-incubation period, we don't have that. Even though we have their proposal, who are the committer, what's their goal, and what's the challenges for the project, but that's not enough. We would also like to know the very detailed or fine-grained state of their when they enter the incubator. So that's part of the technical challenges. Now we treat all the projects the same way, but actually some of them vary a lot. And so also, uh, just to add on the technical part on the scientific side, the challenge is how generalizable is this? Do these conclusions from the Apache Software Foundation hold more broadly? And so, of course, we cannot answer that without studying more of them. And that's what we are doing now, studying more foundations. and then. We, of course, have very good results. We didn't really mention this, but our results show that we can predict whether a software project will succeed six months in with 90% or higher accuracy. So very quickly, we can tell what's in store for them. And we can also tell very quickly if a software project is going down in their sustainability trajectory, we can help them 
very quickly realize that and correct that. In fact, we could do that three months ahead of observable efforts that have happened. So we could faster correct some of those trajectories. Now, the challenges there are, of course, can we have those actionable things happen in a project? So if we say, well, why don't you, you know, communicate more with some of your peers? People can say, well, there is a reason why I don't communicate. I'm busy with other things. Or, well, I'm not interested anymore in this project. So it comes down to motivation again, as Sophia asked previously. So I kind of have a question sort of on the, the direction of this research. And you already mentioned that one of the first things you'd like to do is look at, say, other foundations that might have other criteria around graduation. And clearly there's a lot that you can compare of whether or not your analysis reaches the same conclusions. I'd be curious to know about the other direction, which is instead of expanding out, expanding forward. So the concept of sustainability here, again, we couched it to focus on a project's creation to graduation within the ASF, but there are many projects that say are just past that. And I'm curious for those project leads, if they can also learn from this research, if there's indications that predict early on sustainability that can also predict longer term sustainability around the project post-graduation. And not every project will live out the long term, but I'm, I'm just kind of curious if you have a thought of expanding it sort of in this sort of next phase of the project and whether or not this research can extend to support those questions as well. Yes, we can extend this. That's a great point. So this longer term sustainability versus this more shorter term nascent sustainability. That's exactly what we are thinking about. Now, to study that, what we want to do is first understand what sustainability means beyond this nascent sustainability, because there is no a priori definition for that. So do we take a bunch of interesting metrics? And this is what you know, we want to engage the community on more. So that's why we are talking to the Apache people and other foundations. What is sustainability and success for you? Is it just downloads? Is it just how many commits per minute you have or what else? Or is it the community really? And so, yes, we are thinking about this very much. Our eventual goal is to actually be able to take this into the wild, into GitHub proper, you know, and just choose a project that's unattached to a foundation and be able to judge what is important for them and what is uh, sustainability and a trajectory for them. So, but we are doing it step by step. So we have a two-phase process. The first is studying nascent projects in the first two years of our project. And we will study multiple foundations in these two years. You know, for a reason of controlling different factors, foundations are very good from a data science point of view, because they kind of give you the sandbox, if you will, where many things are controlled. And then slowly we will pull the rug out and start going into the real world without any of these controls. Do this still apply? And then we can turn it into something more general in the second phase. So the answer is yes. (laughs) So the focus on the AF is a practical place to start. but there's a clear recognition in the work that you're doing that foundations like the Linux Foundation or open source scientific software, as examples, are different categories of open source communities, and they may have different socio-technical factors that your work uncovers. And hopefully, yes, uh, hopefully our methodology will be able to tease out all those differences by the time we are done building these technologies. Yeah, they span the gamut. I mean, we have NLP techniques for analyzing text, the emails. We have 
network analysis, social network analysis, to analyze the networks and metrics in them. We have LSTMs for forecasting, and we are developing new technologies for graph evolution, just to understand how these things are changing month to month from one place to another. Hopefully, when we bring all this together under this framework of institutional analysis and socio-technical systems, we will be able to do that for general projects. So from your perspective, looking at the chaos project, what do you see chaos as a project providing now? And where do you think chaos should go in the future as a project? What can we do to support the kind of work that you do, work better together, provide better support to the open source communities to help them understand community health? Because that's our goal. Yes. I would love to see us being able to work within the same framework that you guys have built, which is wonderful, and maybe integrate some of the metrics that we find and some of the methodology to combine these metrics so that uh, projects can take these toolkits. Here is a toolkit how to integrate all this stuff in your project, how to instrument it, and how to look at different things like sustainability at any point in time, your internal health. In addition to everything else that you guys are providing, it would be great if we can kind of have a share in that if you find this useful. So helping us bring our work to the formalism and the level of you know professionalism that you have would be great. So accessing some of these metrics through APIs, having uh, Docker containers, et cetera, for all of these things so that it can be very easy for projects to uh, continue development, integrate these things in their own projects would be great. I wanted to ask you back, actually, while we are at it, what is the opposite force? Is there an opposite force where projects are not ready to integrate some of these things in their development, this self-reflection part? I think what chaos helps your work with is providing a standard definition of things that historically have been debated. And I'll go to the very basic thing with software development, a commit. How you count lines of code, how you value commits, was at the beginning of the chaos project, the subject of intense debate, because many different people define that very basic construct inside of open source software differently. And so chaos wouldn't argue that our definition of a commit or a code contribution is right, but it is consistent. And so that consistency provides a mechanism that you can use to look across these different universes. That's great. The standards are amazingly important. We are finding also. I would say from a, a business perspective, there's definitely a a data accessibility challenge where there's a lot of information. There's almost too much information depending on what you're looking for, but it might not be exactly what you need. So I, I spend a lot of time with our internal project leads just trying to figure out what sources we should even be considering and why and what we're trying to learn from that information to structure how we set up our backends and how we ingest that information. So just from a practical implementation point where we see the potential and we see that there is an incredible amount of data out there to learn and to measure, but figuring out how to get at the thing you need and then how to actually measure against that is a whole nother set of challenges. So I think just from an implementation standpoint, there's always going to be that alignment and sifting and 
getting it to a place where it's usable. So I, I feel like that's very much where I live and breathe these days. We would like our work to be useful and usable. So we're looking forward to interacting more with chaos to make it so. Yeah, I think that's really great work to look forward to. And there are several strands that we can work together on. Unfortunately, we're running out of time for today's podcast episode. Vladimir and Likang, how can people who want to stay up to date on your work, stay in touch with what you're doing and connect with you? Email is the best way to contact me. I'm at filkov at cs.ucdavis.edu, F-I-L-K-O-V. And please contact us. Please check out our papers. We have published in this area for a while. And we are available on LinkedIn also. And I tweet occasionally. I span the range of, you know, cakes, kittens, and political commentary, sometimes science. That is, that is, yes, that's a good use of Twitter. Well done. What about you, Li Kang? How can people reach out and connect with you if they want to stay up to date on what you're doing? Email would be the best way to contact me. And I'm always available. I'm less busy than Vladimir Fyokov. So <laughs> happy to connect with more people on this work. Happy to share the details of the coding, of the uh, challenges. Yeah, if your student's less busy than you, Vladimir, I suggest maybe a little upping the workload. Yeah, we'll, we'll do something. Yeah, 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 yeah. Don't give them ideas. <laughs> All right. This brings us to the last segment of our podcast, the value ads, where we share something that has brought value, joy, or meaning to our life. And I want to highlight today something that happened only yesterday. I went to the first concert since the pandemic started. As a family, we went out to see Lindsay Sterling, and she had an amazing performance, and we just had a really good time with a lot of people and no masks. And I'm really glad that we are to this point now. Well, I have something of value to add also. We have discovered during the pandemic, and uh, that has brought us a lot of joy, and that is outdoor theaters, movie theaters where we bring out chairs and their big screens. And we have a few in the Sacramento area. So we love them. It made us feel like uh, we are outdoor with other people. So I've been to three drive-ins during the pandemic and I hadn't been to a drive-in since high school. So yeah, I get (laughs) you. I guess I'll go next. I feel like mine in the past have all been focused on cooking, but I have a different one today. I'm someone who likes to stay organized and perpetually looking at ways to make things more organized and recently discovered that a new smartphone case makes for a great drawer organizer because it's small enough that it can typically fit in your drawer. So looking for other uses of things that you would normally throw out and suddenly you have a place to put all your pens so they don't explode in your general purpose drawer. Interesting idea. Like Georg missed live music and I live in a more isolated region. So I am going to two concerts in the fall. One is Wilco and Sleater Kenny. And the other is Alanis Morissette, Garbage and Liz Fair. And my trivia is that in the early 90s, a friend of mine, a musician in Madison, Wisconsin named Marcus Bovary. And I had beers with a person who I didn't know who they were, but it turned out it was Butch Vig who produced Nirvana's Nevermind album. And I didn't realize that until about seven or eight years after those beers. It took me that long to put all those pieces together. 
that's really cool having those chance encounters. Likang, do you have a value add for us? So I want to balance my sleep cycle. So I want to sleep earlier and to get up earlier. So I try to go this way around to sleep earlier to get up earlier. But I found actually you can do in the reverse way. So get up earlier, then you can sleep earlier. So that's the trick that I just discovered. <laughs> as you get older, like 80 years from now, when you're as old as I am, you'll learn that there's this natural sleep cycle that in the middle of the night, you wake up for an hour or two and it just get up and work. Don't try to go back to sleep and be frustrated. Just get up, work a couple hours, go back to sleep. This is my advice to you as you get you know, 80 years from now when you're as old as me, then uh, do that. Yeah, you're not that old, Sean. But let's get to the thank yous. Thank you, Vladimir and Li Kang, for joining us today. Thank you so much, Georg, Sophia, and Sean. This was a pleasure. Certainly enjoyed talking thank with you. you. Thank you. And thank you, Sean and Sophia, for being our panelists today. And thank you, dear listener, for joining us today. To stay up to date on future episodes, subscribe for free to this podcast on your favorite podcast app. Share this podcast with your friends and colleagues. If you have ideas for future episode topics or would even like to come on as a guest, please email us podcast at chaos.community. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Until next time, your chaos community.